Please take your Bible, turn with me to Exodus 28. Some of you have asked me about what's a good book to look at regarding how the Old Testament priesthood shows us a picture of the Lord Jesus. There are two of them. One is called, um, you know what, I don't even know what it's called. But if you type in Christ, uh, Old Testament, and then Theodore Epp, E-P-P is his last name. Excellent book. Portraits of Christ in the Old Testament is what it's called. Uh, And then there's another one. If you go on the Friends of Israel, I think it's foi.org. And in their store section, there is a commentary there by a guy named David Levy, L-E-V-Y. And he has that regarding the priesthood, the tabernacle. I think that's what it's called, the tabernacle. And it's an excellent commentary as well. Uh, and they're not too overwhelming, and they're not too heady, and, and getting you out in left field or anything like that. Those are both, those are two both really good resources. We're talking about the idea that we are priests, and that may seem odd. I get it. We don't automatically think of ourselves that way. We've got all kinds of different ways that we think about the word priest. You might think of it in Old Testament forms. You might think of it in contemporary manners. You might think of somebody. Um, who is holier than somebody else. Uh, But what you find actually in Scripture is it's just somebody that's been called to something different. It's somebody that's been called to a specific task to be utilized. It's not that they should be reverenced in any way. Uh, It's not that somehow there's power that sets in them. That's a lie. That's man-centered. It's the idea that they are to be intermediaries between a person and God. Now we know this. We're told that there's only one mediator in between God and ourselves, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the great high priest. But what I want us to talk about today is, what is the privilege that we have as priests? Is being a priest a privilege? And I think that it is. And I think that God has done some interesting things in the Old Testament with the Levitical priesthood to show us the treasure that we have in prayer. Now, I want to go ahead and do this, and I want to raise both hands, but I'm holding a Bible in one. How many of us have difficulty in prayer? Go ahead, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. We struggle, don't we? It's hard to get your mind clear. It's hard to remain focused. You ever realize that you're going to do something, you forgot what it was that you're doing? I need to do... And there's just a cloud with a question mark, right? That's all you got. But when you sit down to pray, you can remember everything you've needed to do for the past 25 years. (laughs) There's a lot of opposition that goes on in prayer. In fact, prayer is is an intensely intimate thing, but a highly volatile spiritual thing. You don't believe that? Try it. Hunker down and put your best foot forward in praying. I'm going to pray today, okay? And let's see how it goes. And you are going to feel like a rag doll. Why can I not get my mind straight around these things? How come every passage that was coming to my mind, 
a minute ago, gone, 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 because the enemy is actively involved in trying to arrest our minds to keep us from communing with the Father. Now we have some hope in that. If you remember from our study in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit is constantly interceding for us. When I'm grieving or I'm going through a time and I don't know how to do it and I'm getting emotionally overwhelmed, and that's never a good time to make decisions, right? My emotions are going to make this decision. Well, go ahead and dig your six-foot hole. You're done. So we pause and we trust what the Word says. I don't know how to pray. So I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit is praying for me. The great thing I love about that is that the Holy Spirit is God. And so that means that His prayers are pretty perfect. I'm thankful for that. But if we dig back even deeper into the Old Testament, we find that there are little things here and there about prayer that God has set up as images that He would like to show us. The idea of the priest. If you look at Exodus 28, I don't think I have this on there. But if you look at just verse 1, he says, Then bring near to yourself Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priest to me. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Everybody remember they decided they were going to approach the altar of incense incorrectly. And what did God do? He killed them. He told them a certain way to approach him. They were to have a holy mindset about it. They were to be reverent and how they came to him. And when they decided that they would treat it as any other ordinary common thing in the presence of God, God has no problem spanking kids. Some sins are more costly than others. And they had been called to a lofty calling with a lot of responsibility to represent him faithfully. And they willingly decided that they would be rebellious. Some of us have a problem with that, that he killed them. I don't. He's God. But he also had two other sons, Eliezer and Ithamar. Anybody got anybody pregnant right now? I'm telling you, somebody take me up on this. Name your kid Ithamar. See what happens. Conversations will abound. Why did you name your kid Ithamar? Oh, you don't know Exodus 28.1. Let me tell you about it. And then you can just go into the gospel after that. It's great. See? Use your kids as, as evangelism tools. It's okay. What? What? Why do you laugh? I have two boys. It's going to come up. No, I didn't name them. Those were not the names that came to us to name our kids. Everybody knows we weren't supposed to have kids, right? Nathaniel, gift of God. Then we had a second one. Surprise. So we called him Zechariah. The Lord has remembered. So in your face, Sue Hall. <laughs> oh. Let's be honest. I can dish it out, but I can't take it. Okay. I am a baby. All right. But here's what I want to draw your attention to is the word priest. What does the word priest mean? Another good guy who wrote a really excellent work on the tabernacle and the priesthood, the offerings, all of these things that goes up. 
His name is Alfred Edersheim. Anybody think he's Jewish? He is. PJ, if you wouldn't mind, bring up his quote. Just so you have this down, this is interesting. Even the Hebrew term for priest, which is where we get the word Cohen from, okay, so you know somebody's last name is Cohen, denotes in its root meaning one who stands up for another and mediates in his cause. The whole idea of a priest is to be there in place of someone else. It's the idea of, we would say, probably standing in a gap like we think about Moses. God's anger is burning at Israel for making this golden calf. That's a whole other story. Good grief, I want to talk about that, but we're not going to. But he says, Moses, get out of my way. Let my anger burn against them. I'll destroy them all and I'll start over with you. And Moses steps up and said, wait a second, God, let's talk about your word. Let's talk about what you've promised. Let's talk about the fact that the nations know what you've said. And there's a lot to go on here that can give you glory by your long-suffering and patience rather than immediate judgment. I don't know about you, but good grief, what was Moses thinking at that moment? Here's what he was thinking is stepping into that gap on behalf of somebody else. He had an intense love for an incredibly dumb and rebellious group of people. And love is what drove him to stand in between a holy God and a broken and corrupt nation. One who stands up for another and mediates in his cause. That's what a priest is. That's what a priest does. Look down with me at verse 6. Because what this chapter is about is clothing. Seems pretty holy, right? I got all your girls' attention now? You ladies? Clothing? No? Good. You're not as materialistic as I thought. I'm just kidding. Verse 6, it's a joke. They shall also make the ephod. The ephod. Anybody got an ephod at home? Several. I figure you did. It's like an apron type device that you put on. Okay? But here's what they're, wo- they're, they're weaving it out of. is a material that's representative of gold and of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. The work of the skillful workman. In other words, you only had the best people crafting the clothes for these priests. And when you made this sacrificial garment that they were required to wear as the high priest who came in only one time in the midst of a year to offer atonement for his sins and for the sins of Israel, it had to be the cream of the crop. It had to be the finest dress possible because that's what's to be expected before God's presence. Now, this is not a verse to begin using for wearing suits on Sunday. I've actually heard this before. That's not what this is talking about. Verse 7, here's what I want you to see. It shall have two shoulder pieces joined to its two ends that it may be joined. The skillfully woven band, that's the girdle or the belt that would hold it together, which is on it shall be like its workmanship of the same material of gold, of blue, of purple, of scarlet material, of fine twisted linen. You shall take two onyx stones. Now, this is interesting. Two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. If you were to look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they've actually used the word for emeralds on these two onyx stones. The idea that you would take 
the tribes of Israel and you would engrave their names on these stones was the idea of inlaying them with a permanence that can never be lost. It says here, you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, according to their birth. So you have two groupings of 12, six and six that were put on these stones. The priest could see them. They're there. It's blatant. It's beautiful. He says here, verse 11, as a jeweler engraves a signet, you shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in filigree settings of gold. In other words, filigree would be a decorative or ornamentation that goes around it. And to set them in that is to have a sense of security that goes on with them. Anybody ever lost a diamond out of a ring or something like that? You're like, this setting is broken. And the reason why you're surprised is because it's not supposed to be, is it? Once it's set, it's supposed to stay. That's the exact same thing here. So here's what you have. Two onyx stones, six tribes' names here, six tribes' names here. They are then placed into a setting that has ornamental frou-frou stuff. I don't know what else to call it. We don't even know exactly probably what it looked like around it in order to really accentuate it. But it was also set in such a way as to where the stone was immovable in the setting, but also because the names were engraved, the names were unmovable from the stone. Everybody follow that? Now watch this. Verse 12, you shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod. Why? as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. Or you can think of it this way, as stones of remembrance. It is something that when you see them, it's supposed to bring a memory to your mind. It's something that's supposed to jar your thinking and make you wake up and go, oh yeah, we've all had instances like that. Or maybe we've forgotten something and then something passes by. I completely forgot about that. I completely forget we had that down in the basement stored back somewhere. Something like that. But notice, they are to be a memorial stone, one on each shoulder of the priest. And Aaron shall bear their names before Yahweh. He shall bear their names on his two shoulders for a memorial. Why would he bear their names? What's this talking about? Well, this is talking about the time of worship that he comes into the tabernacle. And if you remember, you start with the brazen altar, you've got the sacrifice, that's where you get the blood. You've got the fire out there that's roaring, that's where you would fill up the little scoop, the fire pan. You would bring it in for the altar of incense, you'd wash your hands, and then you'd enter into the holy place. You've got the seven light lit menorah, you've got the table of the showbread, Representing the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. Twelve pieces, one for each one of the tribes. And then you would come before the altar of incense. And the altar of incense is representative of what? Oh, please tell me you remember. Prayers. 
Remember, as the incense was burned, the smoke would go up and they represent prayer. And that's how you approach because it was positioned intentionally on this side of the veil, Old Testament, in front of where God's presence would dwell above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And so these prayers are being offered up. And Aaron would come with those six names on his shoulders. Anytime that you're dealing with shoulders throughout the scripture, it is always representative of power and strength. That's why he would bearing them, because this is a corporate bringing of Israel before the Lord in prayer. Prayers on behalf of the nation. Anybody think of a nation that might need prayer right now? And so what we do is we come before God, because we're praying, we're entering into his presence, because we're calling upon his name, we believe that he's the only one that can do anything about it. And so we bring that troubled whole group into the situation with God, saying you're the only one that can make a difference. You're the only one that can bring a change. And so I'm bringing this before you. Everybody know on Thursday we got the National Day of Prayer? If you notice in your handout, you've got a little insert there. We're going to have this room open from 9 to 3 that day. If you want to come here and pray in quiet and solitude, please come. We'd love to have you here. Just spend time for that day praying. And very interesting, our government has a nationally recognized holiday devoted just to prayer. Let's not take that for granted. Let's use it. Let's use it. So if you want to come here between 9 and 3, please do. So he would bear the nation before God. Because Israel needed prayer, Yes. Anything we know about them, yeah, they need prayer. They still need prayer today. Now drop down to 15. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment. That's a very interesting translation. The reason why it's not breastplate is because it wasn't something solid. It was actually made of fabric. It's the same type of fabric of making of the ephod as well. There's a lot more gold involved in it, though, that's woven in. And the reason why it's called of judgment is because the word is probably better understood as decision. And the reason is, man, this is real weird. I don't understand it, I'll be honest with you. And nobody knows anything about it, Old Testament scholar-wise. They don't have a clue. But this was actually a pouch that rested right here and was linked in through these gold strands. And you would open up this pouch, and you had something in there called the Urim and the Thummim. Anybody got those at home? Didn't think so. I don't know what they are. I'm thinking 12-sided die for you nerd gamers out there. I don't know. Some people think they were coins that had light sides and dark sides on them. And what it was, was that it was a way in order to discern the will of God in particular situations. Now, I don't understand that. I really don't. But that's the reason why this was called the breast piece of decision or of judgment. Notice it's the work of a skillful workman. Like the work of the ephod, you shall make it of gold and blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, you shall make it. It shall be square and folded double. Why? Because you got that pouch for those weird things that we don't know. A span in length and a span in width. And now watch this. You shall mount on it four rows of stones. The first row shall be a row of ruby, topaz, and emerald. And the second row, a turquoise, a sapphire, a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, and an onyx, and a jasper. And they shall be set in gold filigree. In other words, decorative. It says here, the stones shall be according to the names of the sons of Israel, twelve 
according to their names, and they shall be like the engravings of a seal, each according to his name for the twelve tribes. So not only do you have onyx stones, one that's on each shoulder for the priest, and he's bearing six names on each side, coming to the Lord, but now you've got this piece that he wears right square in the middle of his chest. And you've got each stone representative of a tribe. And on each one of those costly, beautiful stones, you've got each one of their tribe names involved. You know what that means? They weren't just corporately brought before the Lord. They were individually brought before the Lord as well. Bringing them in prayer. Bringing them before the Lord. Go down to 28. In fact, let me tell you this real quick. From 22 to 28, This is very interesting. We could read through it. You'd be like, what in the world's going on? From 22 to 28 is all about how securely fastened this one breast piece is to the ephod that it will never be shaken or moved. Tell me that's not symbolic of security. Okay? Now look what it says in 28. They shall bind the breast piece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord so that it shall be the skillfully woven band of the ephod, and that the breastpiece will not come loose from the ephod. Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his what? Market. Over his heart. When he enters the holy place. For a, here it is again, memorial, a remembrance before Yahweh continually, ceaselessly. It will never stop being a situation where each one of those tribes need to be carried into the presence of God in a loving manner. That's the reason why it's over his heart. It's not just about bearing them up with strength corporately. It's about offering them up individually because the heart is motivated. In fact, that's what a priest does. You ever thought about why you pray? What motivates you to pray? Do you pray? And if you do, what motivates you to be at that point? Too often it's tragedy. Well, things are going south, I better pray. Well, how come things were going north and we weren't praying? What was wrong with north? Nothing. There just comes a point in our life where we think, you know what, everything's great. I don't know that I need God right now. That's called self-reliance and self-sufficiency. That's the way the world handles things. you got to learn to live independently. Well, why don't you just cultivate some of that pride in yourself? That never turned out well. Now, notice for Aaron, I bring these people continually before the Lord. They rest upon my heart. Continually. Always. It says here, verse 30, You shall put in the breastpiece of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, And they shall be over Aaron's heart. Because when a decision needed to be made where you sought the Lord's face in it, it was a heart decision. It says here, when he goes in before Yahweh, and Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. This is a picture of what's called intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is the privilege of the church. I mean, think about where you'd be without God. What would be the point of praying? You're not in a relationship with him. So there's a lot of difficulty there. 
Anybody ever seen those things they pass around on Facebook? I remember a long time ago when I was on Facebook. Our child is sick. And so we're asking everyone to pray, regardless of what God you're praying to. I just want what I want. I don't care what God gives it to me. I can't think of anything more worldly than that. We don't pray to just any God. We pray to the one true God. We pray to the one true God who went as far as to have somebody get dressed in such a way and to arrange gold-plated furniture in such a way is to communicate, I want you in my presence, and I don't just want you in my presence, I want you bringing people into my presence. You know how the lost get before the Lord? We bring them there. Intercessory prayer. And we pray such things as, Lord, open their eyes. Because Satan has obviously blinded them. Lord, give me boldness to tell them about Christ. Everybody know we got evangelism training coming up? So I'll make sure. Sign up sheets out there. It's starting to fill up. I'm really excited about it. I'd love to put out a second sheet. Sign up. It's free. It's free. We pray, Lord, make a difference in this person's life. Too often we pray, Lord, send somebody their way. Don't we? Who's their way? We are. Lord, give me the boldness. Help me pray like Paul. Help me open my mouth as I ought to and speak clearly the gospel to them. Intercessory prayer. Taking the time to stand in the gap as the believer priest that we are. Between those people that either feel like they can't approach God or those people who don't know God. And getting in there and seeking God's face on their behalf. Maybe this is because you have an ongoing sin in your life that you can't shake. What are we commanded to do according to James? Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. What is that? Intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer. Coming before the Lord. Asking on behalf. Now I've said this before, I'll say it again. I don't mean to sound like a broken record. We're really, 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 really good at bringing physical needs to God. But I don't know that we're so good at bringing spiritual needs to God. I don't know about you, but I'd rather have something really wrong with my hip and be in a joyous fellowship with the Lord. And that's something that we need. I don't know if you've noticed this. Pay attention. I don't know if you've noticed this. But every day we run the risk of a staleness settling over our congregation. Paralyzing us to do absolutely nothing for the glory of God. Arresting us to be more concerned about ourselves and other people. Instead of living for His glory, we're just living to make it through the day. Instead of thriving, we're simply trying to survive and it's because we're doing it in our own power. And I guarantee you that the ingredient that is missing from that type of situation is prayer. Intercessory prayer. I told my wife this morning, I said, you know what, I was real excited about my sermon yesterday. I don't know why I'm too excited about it right now. You know what she does? She prays for me. I told Chuck the same thing. He didn't pray for me. He said, well, think like you did yesterday. (laughs) Wise man. 
Prayer's a difference. In fact, in Jesus' most critical time on earth, this is what He did. Turn with me to John 17. Gospel of John, chapter 17. I'll go ahead and tell you, this is not meant to be a detailed exposition of this chapter, and there are some things that might trouble you. But if Jesus is our great high priest, if the only reason why you and I have been called priests as believers in Him, it's because He, through His sacrifice and resurrection, has made it possible for that grand office to trickle over to us. Would you agree? I mean, we didn't go through years of training and earn it in any way. There's no degree that says you are an official believer priest of Jesus. It doesn't say that. But what He's done for us, and the Word of God points us in the direction of, we are believer priests. Now, I'm not a big fan of them, but if you look at the top of where this title is in chapter 17, you've probably got something written in your Bible that says something like, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Do you see that, or the high priestly prayer? You see something like that? Okay. we got something similar to that going on. Now, what happens after this in chapter 18, is they're passing along the Kidron Valley, and it's time for him to be betrayed. They go to pray at a time. He's getting ready to be betrayed. They come up, we're looking for Jesus, I'm him, they all fall down. It's a real fun scene. But John is the only one who documents what happens before those critical moments. And here's what I want us to pay attention to. If I want my prayers on behalf of other people to be at least biblical in knowing that I'm bringing them to him, I mean, all access has been granted to me to bring them to the Father. Jesus made that certain. But my question is, is what is my high priest praying? And should we not fall in suit behind him so that we're praying the same things that he cared about in that moment? Watch this. John 17, 1. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now, we're right, stop for just a second. How was the son going to be glorified? In his death. He's going to glorify the Lord by dying for sin. There's enough to put your brain around. But notice that Jesus looks at it as an opportunity to glorify the Father. Why? Because He's doing what no one else can do. He's laying down a perfect life for repeatedly riddled and sinful lives. So He says here, page flip, go back page. Verse 2, Even as you gave Him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now this is speaking of the 11. Now watch this. This is eternal life, that they may know you. Everybody remember when we did that study over the word gnosko? And it's the idea of to know in an experiential way, to have actually some sort of firsthand knowledge or experience because of interaction. So what is eternal life? That they would be experiencing the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now pause, because that's an incredible thought. Whoa. Jesus asked for the Father to bring glory in such a way that it's the exact same type of glory that was constantly demonstrated before time was ever spoken into existence because that's what the Trinity did by itself. 
The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit demonstrated glory amongst themselves and needed nothing else to recognize that glory. See, them creating time and bringing us into existence was a mark of grace. They weren't obligated to. Nobody needed to step back and go, wow, I think you guys might be God. Nobody needed to do that. They're perfectly sufficient having that relationship experience amongst themselves. And so glory, before creation ever began, is being demonstrated amongst them. Jesus is saying, I want them to see that same type of spectacular glory now. I don't know about you, but could the church afford to get a glorious glimpse of the Lord? Oh, I think so. I would love nothing more to say, you know what, I think I might have been caught up to the third heaven because there's things I can't talk about, but it drives me to live in such a way as to where I stopped caring about what people said and I only wanted to serve the Lord with all my heart. You can't have that perspective moving forward unless you're asking for it in prayer so that you can live like nobody else lives. It's impossible. It's impossible. Notice that's exactly what Jesus asks for here. It says here, verse 6, I've manifested your name to the men who you've given me out of the world. That's the 11. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know, Gnosko, that everything you've given me is from you, for the words which you gave me I've given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, now, here's an interesting phrase. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Here's a good question. Why didn't Jesus pray for the world at this moment if the world's the one that's got all the problems? Does everybody really remember we saw last week? The fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Everybody remember that? Was anybody more righteous than Jesus? You realize that if Jesus would have prayed for the world, they probably wouldn't have crucified him? If he would have asked for the Father to turn the hearts of the world, he never would have died for sin. I mean, no one's more righteous than Jesus. Think about the answer to that prayer. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for these people. The world's going to do what the world's going to do. Notice his prayers for believers. He says here, verse 10, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world. Now you might say, wait a second, where's he praying at then if he's no longer in the world? What he's saying is he's on his way out. He understands that death is coming, crucifixion is going to happen. He understands that he is leaving bodily this world for a time. He says, I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name. The word keep there means to guard, to protect, to shield them. Keep them in your name. Not that they were in threat of losing salvation. The name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are. What is he praying for there? Guard them and what? Who said it? Unity. Guard them from evil and unify them like you and I are one. How close are the Father and the Son? Anybody get a shoehorn in there? No, not a bit. This is Jesus' prayer. Holy Father, protect us and unify us and unify us 
like you and the Son and the Spirit are unified. Now we're going to see why that's important here in just a second. But here's what we got so far. When Jesus got alone with the Father to intercede on behalf of people that followed him, he prayed that they would be protected. Good prayer. Might want to write that down. Number two, he prayed that they be unified. Why? Because Satan loves causing all kinds of division in the body of Christ. Unity is incredibly important. And he gives us a picture. In fact, you go through all John. Not my will, your will be done. I didn't come to do what I wanted with the Father. I'm not telling you what I want to tell you, but I'm giving you the words that the Father's given me. It's always a deferment to the Father. And he wants us to be as unified in that way as he is reliant upon the Father. Now watch how this moves forward here. He says here, verse 12, While I was with them, I was keeping them, guarding them, same word, in your name, which you've given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Everybody says, okay, wait a second, doesn't that make Jesus a liar? No. Because God was not protecting Judas. In fact, if you want to write down next to that, chapter 18, verse 9, you can look over there and read the context and see that. Judas was not given to Christ by the Father. He was not. He protected the eleven. Right? Believe me now, listen to me later. You can struggle with that. Verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy be made full in themselves. In other words, the words that he gives is the purpose of giving us joy. Why? Because there's none here. So you focus on his word, and that's what gives you the joy. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And I do not ask for you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Everybody see the prayer for protection again, yes? Interceding for protection. Look what he says here. Verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What does the word sanctify mean? Set apart. Notice a third thing we've come about. We've got the idea of protection. We've got the idea that we need to pray for unity. And now we've got the idea that the church, believers, need to be sanctified. We need to be further set apart. And it tells us the way that that happens. Your word is what? Truth. See, all the problems I have in my thinking are a truth problem. And so I need to be praying for you and you need to be praying for me that we are so well grounded in our understanding of the word that it has a setting apart effect. Now here's a question. Set apart from what? The world. In fact, what I did, I don't know if you can see it, what I did in my text right here is I took a little red pen and I circled every time it said the world, the world, the world. And then I got out my yellow highlighter and every time it said glory, I, I marked that up because glory, ah, yellow, right? So I did that in order to show me the differences of what's going on here. The church needs to be more set apart from the world and only the truth will set them apart. Notice it's still something that Jesus needs to pray about. Sanctify them. Set them apart. Now here's a part that's strange, understanding that. Verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. We have marching orders. For their sakes, I sanctify myself. He sets apart himself from the world. That's not what it's talking about. If anything, this is looking forward to the cross. He's setting himself apart for death on behalf of the world so that these things can be so. 
He says, for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. By dying for them and paying for their sins, it further sets them apart. Everybody see that? That's supposed to be a mark of the church. He says here, verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of those alone, the 11, but also for those, sorry, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Who's that? Us. Think about this for a second. Try not to let the dullness of the day keep this from having an impact. In Jesus' most critical prayer moment before he would be betrayed and go through a horrible situation, he took the time to stop and pray for me. He prayed for you. He prayed for the church. How did you come to Christ? How did you come to Christ? Somebody told you, right? You either read it or you heard it. Somebody took the time to share Jesus with you so that you would no longer be destined for the lake of fire, but instead you would embrace for yourself through faith the fact that a holy God in the flesh has died for your sins and released you by his blood. Yes, because he loves you. That's why he did it. If that's the case, guess who told those people? Somebody else. And guess who told those people? Somebody else. And guess who told those people? Somebody else. And what you find is it made its way back to these 11 guys. So when you read right here and it says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their words, that came down to you and me. Because we heard it from somebody, from somebody, from somebody, from somebody, from somebody who heard it from them. Everybody see that? It's a big deal. So here's a question. What does he pray for you and me? What does Jesus have in store? What is he interceding on behalf of the Father for us? Here's it goes. Verse 21. That they may all be what? That doesn't sound very convincing. That they all may be? One. one. Unity. Does anybody think that Jesus thinks unity is a big deal? He's brought it up three times so far. Unity. 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 That we would all be unified together. Why are we so phobic about joining a local church fellowship? Aren't we called to be unified? And yet we have this commit-a-phobe attitude. It's the same thing we see in the world, don't we? Well, we live together, we're cohabitating, but I'm not getting married. Well, what's wrong with you? Why is your value system so out of whack? Strange. We live in a strange world. We need unity. An ununified mindset is more like what Satan has done, not what God has done. And Jesus is constantly petitioning the Father that this be so. What's he want for you and me? Jesus prays for you and I to be unified. That's what he wants. He wants us to be harmoniously melded together. And he died and made us the body of Christ to give us everything we would possibly need to make that a reality. The only thing usually standing in our way is our attitude. We are to be unified. He asked the Father for it. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that, here's the reason. Watch this. Unity has a purpose. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Can anybody tell me what just happened? I mean, Jesus just pulled a a massive hydrogen bomb out of his pocket and dropped it. What happened? What happened? 
How come nobody is as excited about this sermon as I am? (laughs) What just happened here? We should be unified, but why? What happens? The world is going to see Jesus in our unity. And we are a denominational mess. We can't get along with one another. No wonder the world is in unbelief. Why would I want to get in a community of people who can't even handle each other? Now, that's the negative. Think of the flip side. If we are unified, and if we are exalting the Lord in our unification, the world sees. The world takes notice that God's activity is existing and flourishing amongst His people. I don't know about you, but I think a good stamp to put on that is evangelism. Our problem is is that we believe in God, but we're not experiencing God. And one of the greatest ways you begin to experiencing Him is that you would be unified with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is praying for it. Out of all the things He could bring up, what's on His heart is, Lord, make them one. Like we're one. And if they are one like we are one, the world is going to have to stop and go, what is going on over there? Because if you notice, everybody outside is running every which way. Church doesn't need to be like that. They're all trying to rally around something. None of it's good. All of it's sinful. This is different. He wants the world to take notice of our Unity, our unity in Christ. Be amazed at the evangelism opportunities that open up when they find harmony in the body. Moving on here, we have to finish up. Verse 22. The glory which you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Everybody see it? Unity. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. That, that unity is not just a beginning that we have or everybody, we, the conversation needs to start. Get rid of all that soft world language garbage. The fact that we would be unified together and that it would be brought to a maturation. That it would come across the finish line victoriously. That's what he's praying for. That's what it means to be perfected here. It's the same idea of someone who is spiritually growing in their walk with the Lord and they are maturing to mature adulthood. It's the same idea. It says here, excuse me, uh, let's see, uh, I and them and you and me that they also may be perfected in unity. Here's the reason. So that the world may know. Anybody want to guess what that word is? Gnosko. That they may have an experiential knowledge that you sent me. That the world may have an experiential knowledge that you sent Jesus through their unity. Notice this. And what? And love them. Oh my gosh. Love and unity. Love and unity. We sound like the Beatles. Love and unity. Anybody seen Ringo lately? Peace and love. Peace and Whatever. You don't have Jesus. Get with it, man. Stop smoking dope. Here we go. You love them. Even as you have loved me. Father, I desire. You ever wonder what Jesus' desires are? Here it is. I desire that they also, whom you've given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, 
for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Everybody see how love and glory go together? And again, before the foundation of the world. This is something that the Trinity experienced before they ever brought time into being. And here's how he finishes it up. Oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Notice he finishes this with love. There's a Christian philosopher who died years ago. His name is Francis Schaeffer. And he said love is the final apologetic of the church. If you want to get a dying world to take notice, you love. Let me ask you a question. If we are interceding for one another about our love for one another, do you think we got a problem being unified? No. Notice it all goes together. What did Jesus pray for? Protection for believers. Unity for believers. And that love would be exercised amongst believers. And you say, well, in what way? How do we measure that? In the same way that we picture the love relationship between the Father and the Son, the unified relationship between the Father and the Son, that's what Jesus' heart is for you and me. In fact, I would say this, right now in His resurrected form, in the temple that is in heaven, He is probably coming before the Father's presence of the throne with this breastpiece on that has every one of our names on it, and He is bringing our names before them because He is still interceding for you and I today. If you want to know what the contents of His prayers are, the Word of God tells us very, clear, very clearly what was on His heart when He comes in that manner. Now here's the question. If you and I are believer priests, Shouldn't those be our requests for our brothers and sisters as well? Unity, protection, and love. Everybody got it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask for your mercy over us and over our prayer lives that we would seek to be unified as you and the Son and the Spirit are unified that there's enough division that goes on in the world. The world teaches us to live in factions and segregation and all kinds of problems. They've never come up with a solution to anything. But we know that Jesus Christ is the great unifier. He is the reason why no matter what background we come from or how diverse we are, we can come together in Him. Father, I pray for protection over everyone here. We seek to be an obedient church that shares the gospel with the lost. We're going to meet opposition. It might be verbal, it might be physical, it might be spiritual. We need your divine hand of protection. Because there are people just in this city who are going to hell. And they need to know that Jesus Christ has died for their sins. Father, please protect us as we seek to serve you faithfully. Father, I pray that love abound in this fellowship of believers. We see your love demonstrated in the death of Christ. We see that Christ, present tense, loves us and has released us by his blood. Love is so displayed in the cross. Father, we need to have that same type of love. I pray right now we do an inventory of our hearts. And if we don't have that love here, let's at least admit it. 
bring it to you. Lay it at your feet. Ask for you to be the difference. Recognize that without the Holy Spirit, that this chest is just a, a hopeless cavity. That it's vacant. Without you doing the work, without you interceding, without you being the difference. It doesn't matter. There are plenty of people that we know we need to pray for. Father, make these three things the constants of our prayer for other believers. We ask it in the name of our great high priest who prays for us continually. Amen.